Every team, every topic, everywhere. This is Believe. I'm not wishy washy about shit anymore. Um, it's either you can be an adult about this, or you can be a, a person who cares about other people, or you can be on the other side. And if you're on the other side, I have no, no fucks to give. My guest today on Hot Takes on a Plate, I would argue, has been the chef of the COVID era. I say that for a few reasons. One, because he's trying to do things differently at a time when to survive, you have to do things differently. He's trying to change the way the game is played. But also, he's he's made a name for himself during this era, quite frankly, for having hot takes for challenging the status quo. He's gone after some big names in the culinary industry on social media, from Danny Meyer to Tom Colicchio to David Chang. And so what a a better, you know, place to discuss all that's going on in this chef's world than a show called Hot Takes on a Plate. (laughs) My guest today is Eric Rivera. Eric Rivera owns Otto in Seattle. Eric, how's it going? Good, man. Um, You know, as good as it can be, I guess. It's not like good as in last year but good as in yeah whatever <laughs> i mean you're look i mean uh, whatever you define success as during covid i think you're you're having it um but i'm curious because your restaurant auto i said your restaurant you don't have anyone dining in your restaurant you could if you wanted to you could be open at some capacity indoors yeah. outdoors you yeah. don't want people to eat in your restaurant or anywhere on your property first off for yeah. those who don't know you why is that um, I don't feel like arbitrary policies or percentages of occupancy right now are appropriate, um, because it's just a broad generalization of what safety should be or is without people really understanding or knowing, um, what this virus actually does. So, <laughs> you know, everybody's kind of guessing we're all early in nine times out of 10, I'm an early adopter on things. Um, <laughs> You know, but this is one of those things where I knew that we had to create uh, a barrier between us um, and establish this as being a long term thing rather than a short term hope of this being gone in a month or two. Um, when everything went started to go down, it was around, I saw some stuff in like late December, <laughs> January, and then February, everything kind of hit the fan. Um, but, you know, shutdowns and everything started to happen around March. And, Initially, I was like, well, this is going to be over in like July, maybe. And then July came and went and we're in October. Um, And now it's realistically, who knows, maybe another year or two of it. So what I've been trying to do is put foundations into our consistency of approach uh, without having any auxiliary noise coming in. Um, So we can open for 25% capacity. I do have space outside of here that I can do outdoor dining. Um, but that creates a variable that is not okay for me. And why is that not okay for you? Because um, I, obviously, the, you know, look, you've heard the arguments. Some people will say, well, look, 25% capacity, you know, your distance, it's safe. Outdoor dining, it's so safe. What, what, why is it not okay with you? Um, I don't have the money to test everybody right at the door. Um, there isn't a quick enough test <laughs> to have somebody standing outside my door uh, and be a good enough quality test to then have them know that they're negative while they go and sit down at my restaurant. So the last thing I want is 25% of people in my restaurant 
to maybe having one or all of them be positive, but not even know. And then having my staff interact with them and then having either my staff be sick and not even knowing. Um, so it's, it's a very, it's like playing like Russian roulette to a certain degree with your business. Cause if you do have, um, somebody that comes in and they end up getting positive or whatever, the way the contact tracing works here in the city, uh, is that the health department will basically say, Hey, somebody came in and contacted, we don't know if it's at your space, but you need to close down. So then at that point <laughs> I have to close down and I can't. Stop, start, stop, start. You can't play that game. And and you're worried about your staff's health and all of that. And, you you know, you're, I think a lot of people say, okay, well, if I'm not open, you know, my dining room, I'm just stuck with takeout or I'm stuck with delivery. But you've, you've gone beyond that. You, you, you've been doing things that I was saying in March people should be doing. I recorded Instagram um, videos saying like, hey, this, here's some friendly advice. Maybe you should do um, some cooking tutorial videos. You know, people are bored and they're at home, like cook some videos and give people meal kits and they can cook along with you. You're doing that. You're, you're doing your own spice blends and you got online retail and that stuff's not easy to launch, but you're doing it. Yeah, it's it's a fundamental thing of how I started this. <laughs> um, it was never with funding. It was never. It was me basically telling everybody what I wanted to do, and then being like, "That's never going to work." Um, so I've kind of had that chip on my shoulder the entire time. <laughs> um, and so when things started to happen, you know, and having to shut down and having to make revisions and adjustments on the fly, uh, a lot of the ideas that I always wanted to do are now able to be done <laughs> with a market behind it. Uh, so, you know, it's basically taking, okay, cool. We need to bring everybody to the restaurant now. Nope. You know, I don't care about the restaurant anymore. How can we get into people's homes? How can we make this even larger? So essentially what that mindset is to me is, holy shit, we can actually expand our restaurant without really needing to. Um, because space within side of the space doesn't need to be designated towards um, diners. It could be a warehouse. It could be a prep area. It could be everything. So it, immediately you can operate as two or three extra restaurants within one, uh, which is cool. Um, additionally, guests that we're touching now, um, I mean, I'm sending spices. I just had a guest like screenshot spices that she got that we delivered to her in Germany. Oh, wow. It, that's insane. That's very different. <laughs> you know, that's a very different spot to be in um, when you have people tagging food that they're making at home and they live in Germany. Um, so that is something that I always wanted to do. And that's something that I always felt like was something capable. Um, but we had, you know, been functioning as a restaurant with people coming here. Uh, you know, I wanted to do like meals ready to cook, meal plans and all this kind of stuff. That was more like later life. Like I can't work, run around my kitchen anymore. <laughs> you know, I'm yeah. old, you know, um, but that's, we're doing it now and it's, it's really successful. Um, it's really interesting. You just said something that, that I thought was very revealing. You said, oper- you know, you were operating quote as a restaurant is auto even a restaurant anymore. Do you consider it a restaurant? Like, what is it? I never did. That was my thing. <laughs> um, the the gold standard of what restaurants should be or are or is or have been to me was not what I saw as a successful um, business model or a plan. Um, you know, when you see owners and restaurateurs and chefs complaining about small margins or whatever else, um, 
to me, it's an antiquated system that was really uh, on the verge of dying anyway. And so, I mean, it hasn't, all COVID's really done is sort of expose cracks that were already there. It's just put like a huge spotlight on them. Right. So you have, the, the biggest thing to me is, you know, employee pay and how the, the structure of that pay was done. Um, and you can see how bad that is now um, because you don't have representative, uh, representative um, pay going into something like unemployment for a lot of people who are in front of house. Um, they were getting their hourly and that was what they were getting as hourly. And unless they claimed all their tips, which frankly, a lot of people don't, um, that was what they were getting for unemployment now. So you have States where, you know, minimum wage or, or, you know, um, tip share or whatever, you know, other numbers they have or whatever terms they have for them in specific States or counties. Um, you had people that sometimes could be making three or $4 an hour because they get tips. Well, you know, all that goes away. And now that three or $4 is what unemployment is based off for them, which is insane. Um, and so then you start to see these people going like, I don't want to do that anymore. Or I don't want to go back to 25% dining because I know that I won't get the amount of tables I need in order to make blah, 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 blah. You have bartenders that essentially, um, their entire industry is completely shot. I mean, it's dead. It's dead. And it could be gone for years um and these are people who have put time and hours into their craft and now they're going to probably have to honestly like realize to go to a different career you know that's that's basically it um you have gigantic restaurant groups you know five ten fifteen twenty restaurants or ones that try to operate as your small local restaurateur or chef that is a gigantic restaurant group um and you know they're going like how can i fill my 15 restaurants and i'm like that's your fucking problem. You know, I have one, <laughs> I have five to seven employees ranging and I don't really see how that's my problem. You put yourself in that position. You bought too many things, you know, you're running too many things. Well, the um, argument's always been with those, those chefs is that a lot of the reasons why you'll hear them say why they open more and more restaurants is because they're trying to create opportunities for their staffers. So maybe they have a, a sous chef that has outgrown that position and they don't want to lose that talent. So they open another restaurant to make that person executive chef or whatever. Yeah. That's like a, basically like an owner slave relationship, to be honest. Um, if you really believe in somebody, then you show them and then you give them the resources to do it on their own and be independent upon themselves. You don't make something new for them to still own them and still tell them how to do stuff. Um, you show them how to do it. And if you're a good leader, if you're a good chef, if you're a good, you know, business person, if you're a good person in general, um, then you can tell them, cut it, <laughs> run, do it for yourself. You know, I know some people that you can talk to um, because you see that in regular businesses you see that in regular things, you know, people can go work at Microsoft or go work at Amazon. Um, we'll go work at these bigger companies or Apple, and then they have their own success and then they leave. Um, they were paid well while they were there. <laughs> right. You know? And then they go seek funding and they go to like tech stars or they go to pitch whoever, whomever, and then they get their own opportunity to kind of do their own thing. I guess the argument against that, just to play devil's advocate, is some yeah. people don't want to be entrepreneurs. You know, some people, they just want a job and they want to do that job, but they also want to advance. And so there's also that argument. And of course, yeah. if you're a successful business owner, you know, I, you don't, I think there's a fine line between not wanting to lose talent because obviously, you know, that talent helps you, but also not hurting that talent and not trying to intimidate them or, you know, make them feel like they can't leave. Right. Like yeah. it's, it's, you know, that's, that's a big thing that happens in the restaurant industry though, because it doesn't pay like that. It doesn't pay like tech. It doesn't pay like any other right. industry. So 
you know, that's where the abuse of things like treating them like family or talking to them like family or telling them that they're essential to the business, but not paying them as such or giving them any ownership stake or doing anything else that's beyond the scope of giving them a paycheck um, kind of stops those conversations from happening. Um, and that is what leads people to get disenfranchised with this industry. And then they go, man, fuck this. Or they leave <laughs> completely, go do something else. Um, or they sit there with that person for 20 years, or they say, you know what, I'm going to figure this out somehow. And they go do pop-ups or they go, you know, burn a bunch of bridges and start their own thing. And you know, that's my option. So I did. Um, <laughs> but, you know, at a certain point, um, there has to be that, you know, kill switch engage moment in somebody's life where they go, okay, cool. How much of this do I need to really put up with? And I think this pandemic is really doing that for a lot of people. I think it's, you can see, have, you know, restaurants around here. And I've talked to a lot of people and I've had people reach out to me. They, you know, I'm constantly people wanting to work with me and I just can't afford to hire them as many as I would love to. Um, and they're like, man, I gave everything. I was there for 10, 15 years, 20 years, whatever. And <laughs> now I have nothing. I'm on unemployment and that's just going to run out and blah, 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 blah. And I'm like, yeah, that's tough. You know, that's why I've always said, you know, people need to know who you are and you need to tell them however you need to, uh, whether that's good or bad. Um, but you can't live under the umbrella of somebody else. It's not, it's not. I'm curious what you're saying, you know, and the way you're describing it about like, people being made to feel like they're family and then sort of feeling like they're abandoned at the end of all of this, what your thoughts are. And I'm sure you've probably tweeted about this and maybe I missed that particular tweet or that particular Instagram post about a lot of these, these restaurateurs doing these sort of crowdsourced sort of fundraisers for their staffs saying, Hey, I had to lay off all these people. I want to raise money for them. Chip in what you can. Um, I, I have such, you know, I, I don't ever want to be against raising money for people who need the money. But when every restaurant under the sun is doing it, it's like, how much can people really give? Like, and then also, like, who's following up to make sure people are actually getting that money, not to be cynical. But like, I'm curious what your thoughts are on that sort of thing. Um, yeah, it's, it's a lot of it's performative. A lot of it's uh, bullshit. You know, a lot of it is bullshit. Uh, a lot of it is a lot of owners that are just trying to do a cash grab, um, you know, some of their employees at when the stimulus happened that one time, uh, plus unemployment. Uh, some people were making more, you know, that was the argument by a bunch of idiots that's saying, well, now they're making more money. Um, so that, the argument had been, they were never making enough money. That's what, that's where I'm getting to, you know? And, and so then you have these owners coming out saying how it was really tough to lose staff, do all these things, whatever. But the conversation never happened in, and it wasn't organized enough to actually go talk to the employees. Um, so when a Danny Meyer or Tom Colicchio or you know, here locally, you know, Ethan Salt, Tom Douglas, all these guys go and lay off four or 500 employees, um, there's never a follow-up of the employees. <laughs> there's never, yeah, I hear you, Tom. I hear you, Guy. I hear you, white male chef. But here's, you know, 200 of your employees calling you a piece of shit. <laughs> well, you can go, you know, reorganize your company if you need to go in bankruptcy, that's an option. Um, you know, if you need to whatever, uh, but now you're stream, you know, you're streamlined and it even has given opportunity for people of that esteem to open up more restaurants and expand. I mean, in the span of just this pandemic, um, Shake Shack has opened 22 restaurants. 
So it's it's kind of insane to me that you can have somebody going like, well, you know, like Danny Meyer, it wasn't even like we do on behalf of the industry and everything that's happening and it's that time and all such stuff. You know, that that falls on deaf ears to me because I'm like, well, you were going to be fine anyway. You're always going to be okay. You know, um, there's a lot of your employees that are, you know, that are still struggling, <laughs> that don't have anything, that don't know what to do still, um, that are banking on hopefully you can get your own shit together um, to what, employ them again for a week before things get shut down again? Or, you know, what money are you putting towards doing any job retraining programs? What are you doing to help them get into maybe something different or having a functional and transparent conversation and say, you know what, <clears throat> honestly, uh, it's going to be two or three years before I can see this opening and you should really find something else because this is not it. This is not it. I mean, one of the things I've observed during all of this that I, I, you know, and again, I think two things can be true at the same time, you know, right? Like I think what I'm about to say, I get, but also it can be very frustrating, which is, you know, you see some restaurants that were trying to operate in some capacity or another over the last few months where you'd have the frontline employees at the restaurant doing their thing. And maybe the owner operator is at their second home, you know, hundreds of miles away, you know, quarantining. And and that leaves a bad taste in my mouth. At the same token, it's like, I don't, I don't blame people. You know, I, I think there's been a lot of people who have been crapping on people for leaving, you know, here in New York, leaving the city during COVID. And it's like, look, people got to do what's best for their families and whatever. But at the same token, it it is a little odd to see, you know, the, the person who's in charge of, of the troops, so to speak, that's in charge of a company kind of being so far away when you have, you know, all these people who are putting themselves possibly in harm's way. But then, of course, you also have the owners who are, on the front lines. And that to me says, okay, if, if it's, if it's okay for you, it, it can be okay for others. Right. I mean, you know, we've, we've seen a lot of things with, um, you know, rich people, uh, David Geffen doing a selfie, uh, traveling on water, uh, um, you know, celebrities doing a, a selfie video of imagine, um, you know, and, and the story goes on there's, there's celebrities like tripping private jets and going around the world and still traveling and, you know, still living, pseudo you know influencer like Ugh, quarantining is so hard in my five thousand square foot mansion right, with right. my three swimming pools Ellen, you know thing of oh i have to film in my house and it's just like a mansion you know I mean? <laughs> um and you know th- these are all things that are directly relative towards uh the restaurant world too because there are those there are a lot of people you know that see this industry as being like some blue collar worker thing um yes it very much so is on the lower end of the spectrum. <laughs> um, but when you have the ultra successful or even, you know, moderately successful, uh, you know, restaurateur or whatever else, history to open five, 10, 15 restaurants, you don't get to do that with fucking hopes and dream and duct tape. Right. Um, you don't get to open up five more restaurants and be this thing, um, without somebody backing you or having a ton of investors or having people that can say, you know what, ROI on this is going to be five to 10 years. So, Here's, we're going to dump all this money and we're not going to worry about making anything back on this for three to five years. You don't get to be that way unless you have your shit together and have access and resources and funding and, and, and even for a lot of people themselves being rich. Um, so, you know, there was a thing where David Chang, um, he's, he's wealthy. You know, he's wealthy. He's, he's done a lot of stuff in this industry. He has a lot of options and cookbooks, and 
TV shows and you know, everything. This guy has everything. But wealth uh, is relative. Yeah, but yeah. I mean, you get you know what I mean by that, right? Because yeah. a lot of I mean, I've seen this argument be made on on social media where a lot of these chefs, these celebrity chefs that we know to make more than most people, yeah. will tell you they're not as wealthy as you think they are, and yeah. so <laughs> a lot more than me. Guys. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know, um, so you know, it's it's having options and resources and all that kind of stuff, but then also you know when. He goes and licensed um, Fuku, which was a project, and they started to go to like ghost kitchens, and they wanted to launch it in Portland. They got a lot of backlash. He got a lot of backlash, and it was instant. Like, what the fuck are you doing in the middle of a pandemic? You just laid off X amount of employees in New York, but then you're also giving opportunities to people in Portland. It feels like hypocrisy. Yeah, you can't you can't say you can't have both, and so that that project stopped for him. They're launching it again in a different market right now, I think in DC or something like that. Um, and he's kind of back up to opening some of the stuff in New York, whatever. Um, but they're going to be fine to begin with. So when you have this like top down mentality of this industry, which mimics a lot of other industries too, um, you have some dumb fuck shark tank, Kevin O'Leary guy going, this is what should be given to you for stimulus. It should be $400. And I'm like, why the fuck is anybody asking or continuing to ask reality stars that are rich? <laughs> for their opinion on what they should be doing with middle class to poor people. Well, come on, um, that's what that's what sells, uh, you know, advertisements when you're in the media. I mean, sure. come on, Eric, that's what we that's what we do. We want the big names so we can get ourselves out there. That's what we do. Yeah. We we and use the big names, right? And that's that's you know my whole. I've been really quiet <laughs> about a lot of this stuff forever, but it really kind of turned my shit on for this pandemic of that. And who was talking and why they were talking, um, because it immediately went back to, hey, Tom Clico, what do you think we should do? He's a millionaire. He's made more money off of like Top Chef than he ever did off of restaurants. Um, so I don't really value his opinion on anything. Um, you know, Daniel Hum, same thing. You know, when he wanted extra money to help fund uh, Lemon Madison Park to do what they were doing, he literally said, "I called American Express and they gave me a half a million dollars." That Most exist. people don't have that. They don't, dude, not even on, <laughs> most people can't even get an American Express card. <laughs> so you even say like, I need you to give me $500,000, dope. Um, you know, these are, these are the types of things that I'm talking about because there are a lot of other, there's more people that don't get that kind of help than the people who are highlighted that do get the help that are fine. Um, you know, Eric Repair just said, I'm going to open up Le Bernardin again and had this story and it was crazy. And the amount of money that that guy saw, $5 million in PPP, you know, really barely was doing anything the entire time of sitting at home, like doing all these finesse French fucking, you know, roasted chicken things and, and did some community kitchen stuff and it was all funded and it was all, you know, it's, it's all, it's all fine, you know, but then going like, Hey, we're going to open up and we're going to, you know, when we do open up, we're going to do this and, and we're already sold out. Everything's sold out already. You know, well, and, so, and that, that, that totally goes to the argument I've been making to people. It, you know, people have been, I've had, I've had this argument about indoor dining in, in the city here in New York, because a lot of, I, I know people that have been really pushing hard for this, you know, this 25% and then 50%. And my attitude toward it has been, look, if you are the Le Bernardin of the world, or you are sure. a, a name restaurant, a restaurant with a, with a, just a really solid brand, Momofuku, whatever, 
you're going to be fine. You know, people are going to be lining up with, but, but here's the thing we could open a hundred percent, let's say, right? Like just open up New York, hundred percent capacity. Those restaurants will be fine. However, the small mom and pop, you know, the one where this is like three people running the whole thing and it's, it's, it's a husband and a wife and maybe their kids are involved and, you know, it's really small community, not, doesn't get itself an eater, that kind of thing. Yeah. I mean, is there even the money for people to dine out because that's the thing I think people are missing. If you're uber wealthy, you're you're riding out this pandemic, you're fine, you can go to La Berna Den. But if you're somebody who is middle class, who maybe your 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 wife had to drop out decided to drop out of the workforce because you know, we, we've seen these unemployment numbers, women are dropping out of the workforce because somebody has to take care of the kids, kind of thing. It's like, do, is there money to go around to go eat out? You know, and the restaurants that get hurt are the community ones, the local ones. So does it even matter? We have a you know international district here in Seattle, um, and that was one of the first places of hit because all these like racist fucking people were immediately going China virus, China virus, China virus, and so nobody wanted to go out and eat at the Szechuan restaurant or the you know Cantonese restaurant or anything else in all this entire district. And so that was January, February, December, January, February <laughs> before everything got bad, and there was everybody around here going like rally to go to these places. You have to go. You have to go. You have to go. And then, like, the shit hit the fan. And then all of a sudden, it was like you saw the performative stuff again of the white male chefs going like, but I'm actually being affected now, so now it's bad. (laughs) You know, it really took that for it to be a problem. And that's what I've been saying forever. It's always, it's never going to be a problem until it's a problem for white people. Once it's a problem for white people, then it's going to be something that's going to be addressed. There's going to be some sort of funding and there's going to be some sort of attention and then everybody's going to try to rally behind it. But then there's all these auxiliary people that are working hard, if not harder, (laughs) to try to get their things going that don't have the resources, can't get the loans. Um, You know, personally, when I went to go apply for an SBA loan, I applied three different times. Um, And this was three years ago. And I got told... No, absolutely not. No, thank you. Um, but I've seen people brag about getting SBA loans who are doing restaurants right down the street from me. And there's nothing different about them. And they've already closed. So on that side, I'm like, well, you know, when people ask me, what do you do? Uh, what's your restaurant concept? I'm like, stay open. You know, stay open. And that's really what it comes down to for a lot of um, people that don't have the resources, don't have the funding. Um, maybe it's their first restaurant ever. It could be like a taqueria. It could be whatever else. But their idea and the way that they work, um, they don't have <laughs> legacy bullshit systems. They just have to stay open no matter what. And so then you see a lot of things that are, you know, COVID's killing Black and Latino people disproportionately because those are the people that have to stay up and have to go to work because they don't have another option. They're going to the meat packing plants. They're doing all these types of things because they don't have another option. They don't have a trust fund. They don't have a third generation so-and-so family house that they can all disappear to. You know, they don't have all of these things. So their job is to basically just go to work. And that's their entire lifestyle and culture is work, 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 work. Um, And so, you know, when people talk about first responders in the point of police or firemen or whoever else, it's first responders to the fucking plague and having to feed white people. And it's black and Latino people. And we're the ones that have to go in and be like, okay, keep the shit open because they, you know, no matter what we have to do this. And you have, you know, restaurants again, back and talking about the international district, you know, maybe second and third generation now, 
but they're struggling still, you know, and nobody's helping them. Nobody's talking about, you know, go to CalCal in Seattle as a big thing. They're talking about go support, you know, XYZ Tom and Tom Douglas and all these guys. And it's just, it's kind of crazy, but that's, that's what the reality is. No, absolutely. And I, I've been thinking a lot during this moment about, about tone and messaging when it comes to all of this, because we're in this, we're in this moment where we all feel this, this rage, you know, we're all angry because the world is burning. I mean, it's just, you feel it every day when you wake up. And I think about how, you know, we're, we're polarized, obviously. And I try to, I think about what, what is the point right now? Is it, do I just want to vent because I'm angry and I need to get a lot off my chest? Or am I trying to persuade people to see my side of things? Am I, are people persuadable? And I think, you know, I think about it in terms of politics right now. I think about a lot of people who quite frankly vote against their own interests. And I think the reason they vote against their own interests is because of tone. It's because they feel like they're being talked down to and they just want to stick it in the eye of people who talk down to them. And so I I don't know if you ever think about this because it's like on one hand, we're human and we have just this pent up rage about things that we see and inequities and all of it. But it's like, you know, if, if you didn't tweet the way you tweet, if you didn't say the, the, the quotes that you say, you wouldn't have your platform. Right. Like, like it's like, I think part of it is like the, the louder we are and the more, I don't want to use the word inflammatory, but like, look, a lot of things that you say, people get pissed about, like, you know, maybe they shouldn't, but they do because of the way you say it. And, and you would, you know, the odd thing is you wouldn't have this platform if you didn't speak like that. If you spoke in nuance, people probably would ignore you sadly. Uh, but but it's like, where, where, how do we get through to people? How do we get people to see? Cause like one of the things that makes me mad about this whole situation is everybody's pointing fingers at local governments right now saying, how dare you open it? Whether it's, you don't like that they opened up dining or that they shut down dining. I think local governments are trying to manage an impossible situation, but not enough people are pointing fingers at federal government because federal government could save this thing if they would just give people some money to chill out right now. I'll give you an example of how federal government can help. Um, and let's go back to like World War One. <laughs> let's go back. Uh, let's go back a little bit. Um, Rolls Royce, fancy car maker, is told, "Hey, man, you don't get to make cars anymore because you know we're kind of in a world war. We need you to make plane engines." And so they make plane engines, and they make some of the best plane engines that's ever been created. You have all these other companies around that time that were forced to pivot, pivot into making other things or materials or manufacture, whatever. Same thing happened in World War II. They were actually helped by the government, federal government. They were actually told, hey, man, no, we're mandating you to do this, but we're actually going to give you help to, and, and to make this happen. We're not just going to take this stuff for you for free. We're going to make this happen. Um, that is a really good example of a functioning government during the time. I mean, I'm not saying everything about it was functioning or right or whatever, but in the aspect of talking to a business on a federal level and then giving them an option to, you're not going to basically do what you do to do every day. So meaning if you're a fine dining restaurant, <laughs> you don't still get to make, you know, 20 course tasting menus for $400 a person. We're going to give you funding to feed your community. We're going to do, 
XYZ, all these other things, but we're going to mandate and regulate that this is what you have to make in, until we get out of this shit. But Eric, that's not fun. That's not creative. That's not letting artists be artists, Eric. Yes. Um, and there's a lot of us that are still thinking like that. And it's very easy to see and it's very clear. Um, and I've, and this is even recently until a few days ago, um, you know, I, I, I look at him and I'm like, you know, you're, you're delusional. Um, you don't really understand what this is, or you are one of these like fucking deniers of what this is or how it works. Um, and you know, on that side, you know, to play it frankly, I hope they get it. I hope they get sick. I hope they have the realization. Um, I hope somebody they know has it. Because at this point, um, I'm not wishy-washy about shit anymore. Um, it's either you can be an adult about this, or you can be a, a person who cares about other people, or you can be on the other side. And if you're on the other side, I have no no fucks to give. Um, and so that's the, the black and white of things, and that's why I do tweet, because I do, and, it, and I do speak out, I do see things like this, because um, not only do I talk a lot of shit, um, I don't talk shit to just talk shit. I can back it up. And so when it comes to people who are on the highest end of cuisine. I've met a lot of them. I know a lot of them. I've operated within that structure before at the highest level for one of the best restaurants in the world. <laughs> I wasn't just a fucking chef de partie. You were working at Alinea. Yeah. And I was management level. I've fucking worked my way up to management level. It wasn't like I spent six months there fucking peeling onions and bullshit. It was working with the entire like creative team and a, a of high level. So when I'm talking from where I'm saying, I know exactly how those places run up and down. And I know that even when I was working in those places, we were ahead of all of them because <laughs> yeah, as a team, we were ahead of all of them. And I knew that. So it's, it's like, I still look at stuff like that and I still see chefs go, okay, cool. Here's what we're doing. But then I also saw like, you know, the guys at Alinea do their own thing, but then I did my own thing. And I saw a lot of other people do their own thing. What, what really was it? I mean, I, there was a conversation I had the other day, you know, um, with Davida Davison. She said, you know, that it wasn't hard for chefs in Detroit to pivot because they weren't really doing anything that was crazy that people weren't already wanting to buy and there wasn't a price point they had to meet. So there wasn't a showcase or a highlighting of them doing anything different because they were just making food that was accessible. They weren't worried about how it was going to look in transport in a box to somebody's home. They were already, they were already making food for their community. So when everything went down bad, they just knew that they can still go there to get food from their community. They didn't, they didn't have to have a three Michelin star chef or two Michelin star chef or some fucking guy on a TV go, Hey, now I'm going to come down to your level and make a $7 bowl of noodles. Tell me how good I am. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like that's not a thing. And so when you have a lot of people who did that and they wanted a fucking pat on the back or they wanted, you know, to be like, I, we were doing this, but now we're doing food and make sure you get my headshot make sure you get me sitting on my pass with my chef jacket and i needed to be shot by like any leave events or some shit like that you know like that's what they wanted they wanted that shit they wanted it to be on the cover of rolling stone still for just feeding a community and it's so easy to see at that moment that these guys just weren't they wanted that attention still and they wanted to be a part of it you know in the same way that you saw you know influencers going out to go take a picture of them taking a 
paint and you know painting over graffiti or what you know <laughs> it's it's they're fucking insane and so when you look at it like that it's you know you have a whole segment of the population that's deaf and doesn't understand and this is you know relatable to what's happening and it's all performance at that point uh, i want to go back to i'm sorry i wanted to go back to yeah. before we, before i know you're a busy guy and you got to run but but i want to go back to something you just said before we wrap this up and that is that you were talking about kind of hoping people get covid to kind of learn their lesson and yeah. i my question with that is I'm struggling at this point to determine for the people who maybe are anti-mask or kind of rubbing their face in all of the safety precautions. Is it ignorance or willful ignorance? Like, is it because one of the things I'm I'm grappling with in this moment, because I tend to be more of a shades of gray kind of guy, not to be wishy-washy, but just I understand that, like, to get to where we are right now as a society, like some things have happened to set this up. And I think one of the big things that has happened is that people are being fed false information on a daily basis. You know, it used to be that we we may have our disagreements on how to accomplish something, but we were sharing the same set of facts and just interpreting them differently. And now we don't share the same set of facts. We have different sets of quote unquote facts. And there are people out there that are literally getting information every day that is wrong and believing it. And so- there is this part of me that kind of that that feels bad in a way because it's like I mean it's 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 infuriating but like I don't know how to solve that. I, I don't I don't feel that way at all. Uh, I mean I have I see people. There's a story maybe a week or so ago where this guy like had his entire family, seven people. <laughs> they were hanging out or doing something, and seven people in his family got sick, and three people died, and all the way up, he's like having this moment of like, uh, they were kept on telling us we just didn't think we were going to get it because we weren't in New York or we weren't in fucking blue states or whatever. And then you even have Chris Christie. I know. And then he comes out yesterday and says, "Oh, I really regret not like whatever." And I'm like, you know what? At the lowest level, I have this person who said, "Hey, I'm my." family of seven people got it to there's people like chris christie who has all the information has all the resources got preferential treatment in hospitals um who got it and then you have trump who gets it and then just makes it a big political stunt um but then i don't give a fuck about those people the people who i give a fuck about are the ones that weren't trying to get it got it and had no other choice uh weren't able to get around it yes and so when I'm looking at those people that did have options and they just like nonchalantly or use their bravado or ego to like shun it or call it a hoax or whatever, fuck those people. The people that I'm worried about are the and the ones I continue to be worried about are the ones who are fucking scared of it or, or don't know enough about it that they just have to go and do their thing to support their family or, you know, just make ends meet um, that are forcing themselves back in there. And you can see that back in this industry again by servers who are, they don't have any other options. <laughs> no, and that's where I get really frustrated to bring this thing full circle. I get really frustrated with this idea of, you know, you do you, I'll do me. There's a lot of people out there who say, well, listen, if you don't want to go to dine indoors because you think it's unsafe, then you don't have to, but I'm going to do that. And I, you know, besides the fact that sometimes staff don't really have a choice because it's collect a paycheck or be unemployed, right. the right. idea that, it, you know, if you're doing something risky and you live in my community, then 
it can impact me. Like I think I'll give you a perfect example. There is a, a gentleman that I don't know personally. I've never, I don't even know. I couldn't pick him out of a lineup, but it's, it's sort of the chatter in my community right now. There's, there's a, there's a, in my kid's school, a, a mask denier. Uh, he's a nine 11 hoaxer. He's one of those types of people. And, and I guess he's gotten a lot of fights on school property about going into the schoolyard, not wearing a mask where it's required to pick up his kid. And I don't know, it's, it's all the chatter. And I think about his defense, he's yelled at people and said supposedly he's yelled at people and said hey you do you i'll do me it's my choice blah 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 but no if you get my kid sick or your kid does dumb things comes into my kid's school and gets my kid sick that's a community thing and that's a big issue we have in this country some people see things as we're in this together and some people see it as we're on separate islands but we're not on separate islands but i think a lot of that has to do with racism in this country and how it's it's put to give certain people the ability and option to say what they want and do what they want to do. Because two years ago, the scariest thing that was supposed to be happening was a bunch of people seeking legal asylum through a caravan coming through. And we were all supposed to be scared that they were like murders and MS 13 and all this crazy shit. Nothing ever happened, but just because there were Brown people, that's why we were supposed to be scared. But then you have somebody who's not that, who can decide to not wear a mask, call it stupid. And they hypocrisy say, is dead. That's, that's hypocrisy what, is dead. That's, that's what I'm saying. It's, it's somebody who's enabled to basically repeat the words of a racist president uh, who's put us in this position and administration that keeps on putting us in this position even further. Um, it enables people to, you know, get angrier and say, well, fuck you. I'm not going to wear a mask. And you know, you're all sheep. And it's like, or they go, oh, you're all snowflakes. And you're like, yeah, you know, the thing about snowflakes is they're always white and they're easy to melt. So here's the thing. If you're going to fucking say a lot of stuff like that, then I'm going to be really honest. I'm, I speak English pretty well. I'm going to say the things back in the same way that you say them very direct and precise. And before you have an understanding of what, how, and how I say it, you're going to realize that I'm using your kind of mindset towards you in a very different way. That's where the tweets from me come from, because I've seen an entire lifetime of me and my parents getting shit on for things. So on my side, I'm like, but wait, I have checked off a lot of these crazy things in culinary world. I'm not just like a McDonald's fast food worker. However, the McDonald's fast food worker who's had to go to work every day make ends meet while McDonald's has been like completely fucking ignoring them. But when the hero stories come from what happens from COVID, it's going to be people like Daniel Balud and Daniel Hum and all these guys going like, guys, fine dining is back. You know, and they're in the New York Times. Meanwhile, you have, you know, a McDonald's worker in the middle of Mississippi barely making shit and they could die tomorrow. Well, listen, Eric, I, I, one, you, you brought the hot takes, you, you lived up to the show's name. Um, two, I, I don't, I don't know what my audience is at this point for this show, but my, the, what the show that I became famous for before this podcast was a show called Restaurant Hunter. And my audience for that, I would describe as suburban moms and dads in their 40s and 50s and family hour. And if any of that audience carried over to this show, 
your your views are getting a very different audience than they usually do. So we'll yeah. see. We'll see if people listen. I I I, yeah. I really appreciate the time. Um, I you know Otto the website. What's the website for if people want to order something? Eric Rivera Cooks dot com. Um, also check him out on Instagram and Twitter. Um, you know, I appreciate your your courage for for speaking your mind um, and not making friends in in the the old boys club known as the the restaurant world. Um, yeah. I wish you nothing but success. Thank you so much, Eric, for joining me here on Hot Takes on a Plate. And Hot Takes on a Plate is part of the Believe Podcast Network. Check them out at bleav.com. You can also check me out on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Facebook at Rob Patron TV. And if you are listening on Apple Podcasts, make sure to subscribe to the show. If you're listening on Spotify, make sure to follow so you never miss an episode. Till next time. Ciao. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.